This is an ABC podcast. You're with David Astor on ABC Evenings, and I'm joined by Katie Miller, lawyer. Welcome, Katie. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. And Professor Steve Ellen, uh, the Peter Max psychiatrist and co-author of Mental. Welcome, Steve. G'day. Tonight, as part of Ritz and Cures, we've got two topics uh, lined up after the half-hour mark, give or take, we are looking with uh, Lizzie O'Shea at my health record because that debate has just been getting more and more uh, torrid, let's say, or certainly uh, heated, um, to use a euphemism. But before then, grief is changing its shape. It's changing its valency. The loss is the same, and yet how we express that loss and the media available to us as mourners to uh, register our loss has changed. The imprint, the electronic footprint of grief has changed significantly in the last 10 years. And it's a really interesting topic. Grief in the digital world, dying in the digital world. Uh, if you've got any experience in this regard, a text is the best way to get in touch um, did you go for an online memorial? Was it something that you regret doing? Something that you learnt uh, you learnt from doing? Zero four three seven 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 four seven seven four. Katie, it's a, a topic that's only going to keep on changing. Um, have you? Um, is it something that you have um, seen? You know, as a, a within your own circle. Uh, whether it's to salute a, a parent or a, a friend's parent or something like that? Uh, I have. I was actually saying to Steve that I'm currently in the stages of grieving. Um, oh, sorry. I, yeah, I lost my um, beloved pussycat last week. Um, I which... just I really clumsily walked into that and, <laughs> and I didn't mean to revisit that kind of grief for you. Well, no, I mean, it's interesting because, um, I mean, I've, I've also lost a parent um, before and in some ways losing a parent, uh, you sort of know what, you know, you sort of know what the processes are because you've seen other people go through it before, whereas with a pet, it's a lot more sort of private. Uh, and it's been interesting the way that my husband and I have been really sort of going to the internet uh, because you sort of got all of those questions of, well, what's normal and what do you do? And so it's actually been um, a good process to go through with access to the internet and information because you can sort of, you know, get information that you'd otherwise actually be a little bit too afraid to ask people because it sounds a bit weird. It's true. I, I, I must admit I lost my beloved dog uh, late last year and uh, I was grateful for having the outlet of sharing that story and, you know, his um, you know, ragamuffin life through a column. But it is important that uh, we find some avenue of expression, whether it's expressing grief or expressing the love that we had for that person, which in a way is, is, is the one and the same thing. Steve, it's uh, a topic that, um, you know, it, it – it, uh, suffuses all our lives. It's um, is it something that uh, you have observed? You know, either through uh, your professional practice or even personally, this idea of using the sort of electronic media to express grief. Yeah, I've been really interested the way it's changed, the way the grieving process has changed over the last decade or two. And in particular, my eye was caught by an article in The Conversation this week, the website that has lots of academic news articles mm -hmm. by a woman called Jo Bell from the UK. 
And she, she, you know, raised the issue and it got me thinking about all the changes I've seen over the years in the way people grieve, everything from the funeral services being online, the videos that are kept, some funeral, um, some cemeteries now even offer, have online memorials so you can go and visit the grave and then you can go and front up to a video camera, uh, you know, screen somewhere and type in the person's name and, and see a, a video memorial. And I see a lot of um, patients, of course, who are going through grief working in a cancer hospital uh, who have various creative and and sometimes tricky ways of using the digital world where it doesn't always go well. So it's, it's, a, it's a vexed issue and, it's, and it's, it's something that I see, you know, like a, um, a millennial, century old, centuries mm-hmm. old traditions clashing with this new digital world. And it's just, it, it's, it's, I, I'm not quite sure how it's all going to work out. Well, harking back to the interview that I had uh, last night with Jesse Cole, who did lose um, a father and a sister, um, and in fact, if you'd like to hear that on the catch-up service, then head for the ABC website. It is uh, after the nine o'clock mark in last night's show, Monday's show. One thing that she said as part of her own grieving was that uh, how she begrudged this modern obsession to move on and move forward. Grief takes time. How has the electronic media... Uh, kind of uh, uh, expedited grief because that's that's that is a problem if grief is essentially accelerated or, or has been obliged to accelerate. I don't think it has changed the process. I think our process of grief is pretty um, entrenched in us as humans. Um, you know, after you know thousands and thousands of years, we go through very typical stages. And funnily enough, this is one of the most useful things that I ever explain to a patient. Of all the things I say to patients over mm-hmm. my thirty years explaining to them what grief is when they either lost someone or they're facing death themselves, this is the most useful thing because people often mm-hmm. are very confused by it. And there's a whole lot of ways it's explained, but the very popular way is to use the Kubler-Ross model of five stages, which people will have heard of. It's even been on The Simpsons, that sort of thing. It's denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and acceptance. Let's, and, let's go through those slowly. Yeah. So denial. Denial. That's that feeling that this isn't real, that this isn't happening to me. It's not true. Mm. Often people describe that they wake up in the morning and they feel, oh, they yawn and they feel fantastic and then it all floods back to them. And so they they go through this sort of pattern of not believing it's real and constantly re-experiencing it as they forget and then they remember and they forget and they remember. That's a survival mechanism? Well, these are just normal psychological processes, whether I'd call it a survival mechanism or just normal part of being mm. a person. Yeah, sure. Um, anger. anger, you said, was the second one. Yeah, so people get anger, and the way we like to describe it often is anger looking for a target. Mm. People just have a build-up of anger, and it just shoots off at whatever target comes in front of them, which is normally loved ones, people close to them, people they're dealing with. So people have anger outbursts. And then the next one's bargaining. That's that feeling of if only. If only I'd done this. If only I got a checkup. If only I'd gone earlier. If only I hadn't smoked. If only I'd been a better person. All this sort of stuff, and it feels like your brain is a broken record. And people often think they're going a bit crazy. And then the next one is sadness. Of course, people feel intense sadness and they'll cry a lot. And then the acceptance one is people have times where they just feel they're at peace with the whole process and they understand it. Now, the catch is, and this is why it's so Mm. important to describe it to people, is that you... The idea that you go through these one after the other is nonsense. You bounce around from one to the other like a pinball. You might be in, you know, have phases of denial in the morning, anger in the afternoon. And so people often think they're going, they're, they're losing their mind. And they often say as they're approaching death or they're dealing with the death of a loved ones that I just feel I'm, go- I just feel I'm losing my mind. And they're not. This is a very normal process. And the time is about typically six weeks to six months. 
that most people go through it. But fa- you know, di- the tail will last comfortably two years. So it's it's a it's and, a and slow in process. Maybe ongoing. Um, Some grief you never get over. Um, getting quite a few interesting uh, texts, including from Marcel, who says that uh, I find it odd that people who have passed away and their digital footprint on Facebook, for example, is still active. Um, that's something that uh, would, I, I'd imagine be quite disconcerting. Well, it can be disconcerting, but it can also be quite comforting. So some people really like the fact that uh, somebody's Facebook page or Twitter profile is still there because it's still a way of having contact with the person. Um, the problem is, is that if you, if you, the person who you know is dying, don't make it clear what you want um, done with all of those social media accounts, then really what happens to them tends to be decided by people who are left behind. So what we're increasingly seeing in wills are people actually giving instructions on what to do with their, you know, for want of a better word, digital assets. So you know, do you want your Facebook page put into the in memoriam phase? Like Facebook now actually has oh, a that setting. Is available. It right. is a setting where you can actually say, all right, this person. Um, is now deceased, but you keep the page there as a sort of uh, in memoriam? Um, or, you know, do you want the whole thing shut down? Do you want to download it? Do you want the whole thing just deleted? Um, because, you know, it's it's just as important as what do you want um, to happen with your real effects. In fact, James uh, has also got in touch and saying that he lost uh, both an uncle and an auntie in uh, recent uh, times. It's been a torrid time. And then then a beloved cat as well. So, you know, pets are very much part of the uh, the emotional picture. Uh, it's, uh, that is a really calamitous um, kind of 12 months there, James. But he has actually said, um, siding with you uh, there, Katie, that idea that it's actually quite comforting to have that contact still, particularly the uncle in this case, uh, that his words, his thoughts, his, uh, his kind of animus is still there, even if it's an electronic dimension. So, yeah, and the maths alone tells us that 30 to, ten to 30,000 people who are on Facebook die each day. So there's, a, you know, obviously hundreds and millions, obviously, of um, Facebook pages of people who have deceased. And they're being used in all sorts of creative ways. A lot of the um, online memorial-style ones, mm-hmm. people are continuing to post. So people might post at anniversaries. They might post something like, went to a Collingwood match today, Fred, wish you were here, thought about you. Um, and mm. um, a lot of people report that they find that very comforting because it keeps the, the virtual self alive sort of thing. The person lives on in their memory. But I think it's probably too early in our era of Facebook to figure out whether this is a a good or a bad thing or just a thing. And there's definitely been some negative uses of Facebook pages as well, particularly Mm. where um, people have died in very tragic, um, traumatic circumstances, Mm -hmm. um, especially in circumstances of bullying, that uh, we have had instances where that bullying has then followed onto the deceased person's Facebook page, which has, of course, been extremely distressing for the friends and family. Another texture has come in, and it's an interesting uh, uh, comment to... um, to sort of explore is that uh, the thought of internet grief horrifies me. No social media for me. I use the internet um, uh, a lot but would never uh, live my life on it and I'm a private person would never grieve this way. More and more uh, memorial services or funerals offer the electronic portal as a means of expressing uh, bereavement Uh, and yet what about the avenue available for those who wish to, you know, abstain from that and go down a more traditional pathway. I mean, that's to be respected as well, of course, Steve. Well, I think it's one of the traps because there are you could overshare, for example. If you're dying, mm. some people overshare. They just put too much stuff on and some people then overuse the memorials. Um, I, th- I think Katie's point that she made earlier, um, you have to have a plan. These days when you're mm. planning, you need to plan what you want to happen with your digital footprint. 
Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's not just your social media accounts. It's also your email. Um, it's any sort of computers that you have, so your laptops, your hard drives, you know, your photos. Uh, we just have so much um, digital um it could be called detritus. It could be called assets. It depends how valuable it is to you or to the people who are left behind. Uh, and, you know, it's that idea of just as, um, you know, some people wouldn't care about people rifling through their clothes after they're gone. Um, other people find that's a very personal thing and they want to deal with it f- um, before they go. Um, equally, how would you feel about your family members, you know, going through your emails or your computer files trying to figure out, well, is there anything important on here that we should keep or not? Um some one uh, listener says, I find it macabre that a well-loved work colleague passed away five years ago and there's still a Facebook message sent out every year to wish him happy birthday. Uh, another texter has said that um, I haven't been able to delete a friend's name from my contact list five years after he died, that idea of re- retaining that person's name out of out of respect and affection. This one also, maybe this is uh, for you, Katie, to, uh, to amplify... Uh, identity theft issues uh, with deceased people uh, and the accounts of those deceased people is uh, something to consider. Absolutely. And I think this is why Facebook uh, developed the in memoriam sort of um, phase of pages, because it had concerns with people essentially having access to the username and the password um, and still maintaining the account as though it were a living person. They saw that as being a little bit... um, problematic in terms Mm. of security and so that's why they've actually got this separate phase of it. Um, I I don't know, I haven't seen um, any cases yet of identity theft where um, a deceased person's social media accounts have been used in that way Um, but I think it is something to sort of think about that if you've still got, um, you know, accounts out there especially if you've used the same password for some of your, um, you know, more serious sort of accounts like your email or your banking, well that could be a problem. Was it, uh, sorry, Steve. Oh, actually, I was just going to follow mm. on with some of the things to you know keep in mind when you're dealing with dying and uh, in this, in the digital age. There are so many processes now that have made it better. Some of the things I really like, on the other hand, are for example, people often use um, various digital formats to create messages for their children, for their grandchildren. Um, they use the various apps that you can get to plan their own funeral, to have a message at their funeral. Um, they curate their own photos. Uh, you know, and some of the, the ability to do a lot of that stuff that was so hard in the pre-digital era, I think has really helped a lot of people and it helps people prepare for their death and to think about their death and to face it with a little more openness. And gives you a sense of of governance gives you a sense, some some measure of control, and in a time essentially where control is ebbing away uh, from your uh, fr- from your circumstances. Uh, the other issue, of course, Steve, is um, about we can often hear about a um, a colleague or a friend's dying through social media. So we we kind of we get ahead of the news or or kind of with the breaking news of someone's ill health. I mean, does that affect our grieving process? Sometimes we're served up with information almost too promptly. I, I, absolutely. I mean, traditionally, if someone died or there was a major trauma 20, 30 years ago, the police notified all the relatives before the media found out mm. so that people weren't traumatised. Now that's impossible. You could be watching the Lombok um, earthquake right now yes. and learn some terrible news in um, in a way that's uh, quite traumatic and much more confronting than it would be if it was delivered in the traditional ways by someone who sat you down and all the you know usual rituals that went around with breaking bad news. E- equally, though, I mean, with um, you know posts on social media when 
a loved one has died. I, I mean, I think that for my generation, that's definitely become the replacement for the classified in, you know, the newspaper. I don't think anyone of my age puts death notices in anymore, but there will be sort of very formal Facebook posts, you know, the Valet sort of Facebook posts yeah, that sort yeah. of announce that this event has happened. Well, as one texter again uh, has uh, recalled, only today was talking about uh, a similar conversation, similar topic with about a loved one's Facebook site after they die. And really, these days, leaving a comment, leaving a um, a fond note is the equivalent of leaving flowers on a gravesite, um, just so the electronic uh, sort of parallels there. Um, and also, this is uh, have received dodgy action requests in posts from a dead person's Facebook account. So it is something we do need to be very vigilant about, and the in-memoriam option sounds like a, a wise one to exercise. The flip side of death... Is staying alive. I don't have staying alive lined up, but we will be talking about my health debate, my health record, in fact. There was a wonderful cartoon. I'll find out who the cartoonist was of a person, patient, in full hospital gown, front shot, and the back shot was that same person with backside showing and back and legs exposed. Of course, the gown was called My Health Record. It looks fine. It looks as though it has uh, total security, but you turn it around and you never know. There actually might be all sorts of uh, data leaks and breaches to the system. That's one concern. But Lizzie O'Shea, Melbourne lawyer and board member of Digital Rights Watch Australia, will have many more aspects to discuss on My Health Record. Katie Miller, lawyer, and Professor Steve Ellen, uh, psychiatrist and co-author of Mental, uh, and I, David Astell, are joined now by Lizzie O'Shea, a Melbourne lawyer and board member of Digital Rights Watch Australia, and you betcha they're watching the My Health Record debate. Welcome, Lizzie. Thanks so much for having me on. Did you, in fact, give us a little bit of a, um, a background or a fantail kind of version of uh, the Digital Rights um, Watch Australia? I'm not aware of that group. How long has it been um, up and running? Well, we've been around for about three years. We're a bunch of activists and lawyers and academics who are interested in these issues. We think that human rights exist online in the digital space and need to be defended there as well. Uh, and it really came out of the campaign against the metadata retention scheme, which we think is a terrible policy and should be changed. And we realised that we we did need a central organisation that could do this kind of work in a consistent manner. And so that's when we got together and decided to form this organisation and do this work. So, I mean, have you um, have you bitten? Have you actually sort of seen some uh, legislation either uh, blocked or modified in the time that you've been um, We certainly active? put in a lot of submissions, I'll mm, tell you that, David. Yeah. We also have released a few different reports about the state of digital rights in Australia. We are hampered by the fact that Australia does not have uh, any protection for human rights enshrined in law um, in any meaningful way, and we're the only really the only Western jurisdiction without a Bill of Rights, which is kind of not an accolade you particularly want. Um, so then making that leap around how that takes form in digital spaces is a bit more difficult, but we are we're doing well, and I actually think um, that this issue, my health record, is a really obvious one where people have uh, expressed their concern about the imposition on their privacy, uh, and they've tr- they've tried to make demands on decision makers, and hopefully we'll see the the government respond with some good proposals for change. Lizzie, so I've been you know following the debate very closely too. And uh, whilst I've got a lot of concerns about the privacy, I think a lot of the good stuff about My Health Record's been left out and some mm. of the context. Mm. Um, you know, I honestly think that My Health Record, if it get, they get it right, will save just thousands of people. The ability to not have so many medical errors, to get our prescriptions right, to be able to read doctor's handwriting because it'll be typed. Um, the ability to see... Um, 
you know, get information quickly. Half the time we just don't have information because to get it, it's almost impossible. We have to write to various other people. Um, do you reckon the, you know, so I, I think in the debate that's been lost a little bit. What, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly and I try to say this every time I have to talk about this issue because this is a policy that needs to be gotten right. It's essential. I, I don't think you can think of a kind of digital rollout plan that is probably more important to people's daily lives. And there's so many ways in which it could be helpful. But what I have a problem with is that the government has rolled out this project like it does with lots of other digital projects, heavy-handedly without listening to experts and people who might be able to provide an alternative perspective. They design systems without putting security and privacy at their core. And we end up getting a system that is just not as good as it should be, doesn't, isn't fit for purpose, both from a privacy perspective, but also I think from a medical perspective. When we talk to doctors about what kinds of things will be on there, um, you know, a doctor I was speaking to was talking about how it wasn't necessarily clinically useful information. And sure, there may be changes that occur to the system over time, but why not start with a smaller, less, um, less heavy-handed, less grandiose kind of plan and then iterate out. Why wouldn't you design a system like that that maybe deals with what you were talking about, like a list of medications? Why couldn't we start with a program like that and then tinker this? It, yeah. yeah, and then get it right and then build on it from there. Why impose a singular solution that then has all these problems and, and undermines our trust in these kinds of systems as well? Fair enough. So, Lizzie, can we just take a step back? Because I know that everyone's been talking about my health record over the last couple of weeks, and I'm sure that a lot of people are sort of, you know, know that it's happening but don't know a lot about the details. So, I mean... In a nutshell, what is my health record and, and how is this a legal issue? So there's an act that governs it, but uh, it's basically a system for sharing medical information, not all of it. And it's a little unclear what it will actually look like in practice. We only have some guidelines. One of the key disputes that, in fact, arose over the last couple of weeks was that um, Greg Hunt said there's policies in place for how that information will be shared and who it will be shared with, most uh, notoriously, I suppose, with law enforcement. Um, and the law says that it is possible to share it with law enforcement, for example, without a warrant, um, but the policy in place is that they don't do that. So there's a bit of a tension around how how it's administered and I think there is a difference that we need to keep in mind between what the policy of the Digital Health Agency is and how what the law is, what it allows them to do. And I think uh, it's possible that lots of people didn't quite realise that this legislation was drafted in particular ways to facilitate access to this data by third parties in ways that it probably shouldn't be. And if you were designing it again with privacy at, at its core, you probably wouldn't have designed it like this. Um, yeah. Third party you mean essentially it could also be a private, uh, private sector as well, is that it right? It could be over time. So at the moment they say that they're not going to do that, mm. but you would have seen there were um, Fitz, Mark Fitzgibbon from NIB Health was saying that he really wanted to get access to this data. Yeah. I'm not sure that was really complimentary <laughs> to the government's message. It's, it's, it's not probably. What, He's not, doing his best impression of a supervillain there, I think. <laughs> um, but the point being that <laughs> private industry knows how valuable this is, and they want to get their hands on it, and they're going to put every effort they can into lobbying the government to allow them to do that. And I think we should expect that. Uh, and I, I'm not confident that the government's prepared to withstand that kind of lobbying and that's why I've opted out but you know I would like to see some of this better protected and better structured into the legal system that governs it rather than just relying on government policy. So Australians do care about privacy that's what we're getting out of this whole debate. I think they absolutely do we love to be told that people just tick the terms and conditions they don't pay attention to privacy they're prepared to give this away because it serves a bigger purpose I actually think people really do care about this they want it to work well they want it to be governed properly and the furore we've seen about this this particular she shows that. I reckon. I'm, I feel I'm about to say something shocking. I reckon. Um, on, let me get the delay button. Yeah, get the delay button going. <laughs> Go for it. 
Part of the reason I think a lot of doctors haven't been overly fussed, I know how some have, but part of the reason they haven't been overly fussed is because we work in the public system and we know how crap the current privacy is. Now, I reckon I could walk into pretty much any hospital in Melbourne and look up a record, even though if I don't work there, because computers are left on all the time, I can hear my CEO having me on speaker mm. right now. Um, I've been hacked myself. Um, so we've had examples where, you know, like a, a celebrity's been in the hospital and people have looked at their records. We've had examples where doctors or nurses have come, have got sick and other people have looked at them. And that happened at a hospital I was at not long ago, not my current one. And it got me thinking and I looked up my own record and I went to the little bit the tab that tells me who's looked at my record and I saw three of my registrars, you know, doctors who work for me over the last couple of years wow. had looked up my record <laughs> and, yeah, they'd looked at it and it is just – and I would – estimate that around Australia right now there'd be about oh, at least a thousand databases sitting in hospitals that aren't even password protected that are you know kept by say intake workers who just keep a list of this and a list of that and so when we look at the privacy that my health records got mm-hmm. as poor as it is I agree it's got holes in it it's a heck of a lot better than the systems we've currently got. I, I accept that. And I think uh, part of the problem with this whole program is that the government hasn't really done a very good job of explaining what it is or educating the public. Fine, that's their job. I expected better. But, you know, they are still selling a lemon in my view. But also we're asking then doctors to advise patients about this, the risks and the benefits of this system when they may not be qualified to do so because they're not actually information architecture specialists. They're doctors. They're trying to do their job. They're trying to – they see the benefits of a more centralised system because their current system isn't as good. And and that's not really consenting patients in the way that you would expect for any other kind of medical procedure. It's uh, it's eighteen to uh, nine o'clock. You're with David Astle on ABC Evenings, and um, uh, the voice you just heard is uh, Lizzie O'Shea, who's a Melbourne lawyer and uh, board member of Digital Rights Watch Australia, talking about my health record. Uh, and uh, we are joined by Katie Miller, a lawyer, and Professor Steve Allen, Peter Mack, psychiatrist and co-author of Mental. Lizzie, are we? Um, is the is your own group aware of the sorts of um, opt in opt out uh, numbers? Uh, even just anecdotally, is is there a um, a metric that you can apply to see how the Australians are? as a population responding to this uh, message from government? Understandably, the agency responsible is a bit tight-lipped on how many Mm -hmm. people are trying to opt out. But we know, I mean, there's an estimate that it's in the tens of thousands, possibly more than 20,000, but we don't know exactly how many, and they say they'll report later on that. I think the best thing would be if they reverted back to an opt-in system until they can provide some kind of uh, guarantee around the reforms they've proposed. So Greg Hunt, um, bowing to public pressure, yeah, he has um, proposed a couple of changes, so limiting what uh, third parties can get access to the to the data, so imposing a warrant requirement for law enforcement, and then also allowing records to be deleted if someone's decided that they don't want one. So currently, if you if you opt out, uh, in fact, your de- record is not deleted, it's just inaccessible, which is, I think, also troubling. So he's proposed changing that, but that would require a legislative change, which should take some time, knowing the current government and the parliament in place, and he expects to do all of that with an extra month for the opt-out, so that would be before mid-November. I think he's not going to achieve it. So I, uh, my suggestion is that we revert back to an opt-in until we can sort this out, get the um, get the policy right, do some proper consultation with medical professionals who have to deal with this and, and get it right. On that very topic, uh, Maureen from Bendigo joins us. Welcome, Maureen. Good evening. Gee, I'm a, com- I'm a communal oh, garden patient here. Um, um, I um, decided on advice um, from my medical professional mm-hmm. to opt out. So I get on the computer, and of course I don't have a driver's license or a passport, 
And it's the first time I've ever realised that it's, compul- it's becoming compulsory to have photo ID here in Australia. No one ever told us that we had to. So could you, could you um, well, manage I rang to opt the out one- in the end? Uh, hmm? Could you opt out in the end? Yes, I rang the 1800 number. And um, I rang um, at quarter past eight in the morning because people said, oh, you've got to wait hours to get on. And um, by 20 past eight, I'd opted out. And all I had to do was give them my Medicare number and they checked my name, address and birth date and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And gave me a reference number and said they'd note I'd get something in the mail to confirm it in a couple of weeks. Maureen, what did the doctor say to you to convince you to opt out? I just asked the question, what did she think about it? And she said to opt out. Why did she say that? Do you know, Maureen? Well, I, um, my records are at the local hospital and with the um, what we call primary care, which is part of uh, it, a doctor. It's, part of Mon- it's all connected up with Monash Medical Un- um, Centre, um, school and, and the hospital and all the records go uh, between the hospital and my doctor. Anything I have with the, done at the hospital, the stuff goes to the mm-hmm. doctor anyway, so she knows that. See, and I mean, oh. I'm, um, um, how can I put this? I'm a mature age person and I'm unlikely to be moving much out of my lo- lo- local locality. Yeah, a lot of people are making that argument that if you're not travelling around and you've got regular doctors and nurses and clinicians who know your health care, then there's not then why take the risk with the privacy? And yeah, I, 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 accept right. that I was one. concerned about yeah. the privacy. Hmm. And um, the other thing too is that the records were already in. They told me. But imagine, Maureen, and look, I'm only being devil's advocate here. If you were travelling with friends and uh, you found yourself suddenly in uh, in sort well, of... all they've got to do is contact. Um, the, my right. medical professional. And well, look, that's the option we all have. So it's it is the it is the consideration that every Australian citizen needs to take, and and clearly on advice uh, and on your own uh, sense of um, of of what's right, you've you've made the your uh, your call, Maureen, and um, that's got to be respected. And thankfully, it was uh, possible after uh, an early morning call. Yes. Well, well good on you. Yeah, um, the one eight hundred line um, is open twenty four hours a day. By the way, and okay, it's not made clear. Everyone's ringing up during business hours, and that's why they've had to hold on. Thank you for your thanks for your call, and also for your advice, Maureen. We really Thank appreciate you. it. All the best. Lovely chat. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That number, just so everybody knows, is one eight hundred seven two three four seven one. If you do want to opt out and you don't have photo ID, because Maureen's right, you do need that in order to opt out online. I've also had um, a lot of friends who have had difficulties opting out online for some really strange things. Uh, so, for example, I had uh, a friend who uses both her maiden name and her married name, uh, and the system wasn't able to cope with that, and oh, so she ridiculous. had to make the call really? um, as well. It's I, it's pretty unbelievable, yeah. really. Uh, someone here texted us, said, too late, I've already opted out, can't see any benefit, and the risk is too high. I predict massive opting out. Will this ultimately impoverish um, the the database if, if there is this sort of large exodus? Yeah, I, I think it will. This is why I find this so frustrating, because these problems are problems that many civil society advocates have been raising for a long time. It's not as though the government was completely blindsided by them. Lots of people have raised them in various formats, and lots of experts as well. So if the government uh, took a step back and perhaps recognised that he had some weaknesses in this field and then it might want to consult with people who were experts, a 
lot of this could have been avoidable and we could have a system that actually worked, that served the purposes that Steve was talking about before. I think it's really essential. We should be making use of digital technology to um, to ramp up what kind of treatment we can offer and to improve diagnoses, all those kinds of things, to avoid problems associated with sharing amongst health professionals. But why do this on a, a system that's just not fit for purpose? It's not good enough and it's very disappointing to see governance this poor in the digital age. Um, fun fact, I was actually doing some research today on something completely different um, and actually stumbled across uh, a description of um, my health record, but it had a, an earlier name. Mm. And it was from April 2000. So this is something that has been in the works for a very long time. Um, so that was my fun fact. But Lizzie, question for you. I mean, mm. you've talked about, you know, if the government took a step back and got this right, um, what would getting it right look like for privacy? Well, I, I mean, I, I like to talk about this as if, you know, if you, were, you needed a plumber to come over to your house, you wouldn't uh, cut the plumber a key. You would invite them in and you'd be in the house with them. You might give a spare key to your neighbour, but you wouldn't cut a key for every plumber in Melbourne and every house painter and every electrician just because you might need them. So currently, 900,000 medical professionals will have access to this database, 12,000 organisations. I don't know why you would have a system designed like that. It seems nonsensical. So why, would you, why wouldn't you instead change the, it's so that you have to authorise other medical practitioners or, or um, professionals to access your information. And that way you'd be obtaining consent because it's not as though um, it's a reasonable basis to do that just because it will improve medical research. You should consent to participating in research. So that's one aspect. I also think we start with where the need lies. So if we do have um, problems with managing the records of chronic patients or patients with multiple medications, maybe we do start with a smaller project around digitising um, medications and we allow people to have control over over that and um, you know that it's it's theirs that they they have a sense of data sovereignty over it rather than something that's just stripped mined by the government and used for their own purposes uh, and then build out from there so we start with chronic patients who might have those problems and work out a good system we test it out we find out how it works in practice what kind of problems we encounter we brief doctors properly so they know what they're getting their patients involved in and we fund it properly and we consult with experts in the field I think having a one-size-fits-all is the real problem here because uh, it gives you one chance to get it right and if people lose trust in the process, they won't participate. And that's a big problem. It's well affected. I know it's a problem that um, Victoria Police has had in the past with their LEAP system, which is a uh, basically a database of, of all uh, offences. And uh, there was uh, illicit and unauthorised use of that database because there was open access to all members. Is there an existing um, equivalent of my health record somewhere else in the West that uh, we can use as a, a template of what to do right and what to and what to avoid? I have to say, I, I'm not sure I know one offhand, but I, I unfortunately know the opposite, which is that obviously Tim Kelsey, who's the head of the the agency responsible for my health record, is, in, is has come from the NHS, mm. uh, where he presided over a, a very similar program that ultimately has been abandoned. Uh, but the, it's interesting reading the report that came out um, in the wake of that particular program uh, in England, where they talk about briefing doctors, um, you know, having a, a system where consent is prioritised. So there's a bunch of learnings that already exist from a very similar program that was uh, tried in the UK, uh, failed for very similar reasons to the kinds of reasons we're seeing now, I would have thought that would be a good place to start looking at how that that program, that um, report didn't actually recommend the abandonment of that program, but it did recommend a bunch of different ways in which you could improve trust in the system. And that might be a good place to start if the government's looking around trying to to try and fix this. Steve? I haven't seen any on a countrywide scale, but of course I've, I've toured lots of hospitals around the world and hospitals in Australia, 
and had a look at some of the really brilliant digital records. Probably the best in Melbourne at the moment, in my opinion, is probably the Children's Hospital. They've got an amazing system, all integrated, bedside, outpatients, pathology, radiology. You can get everything. The scripts are all fantastic. The patients can log in with their own username and look at information that's on their file. They can go home from their appointment, see what the doctor wrote. Things that need to be private are private. Say, for example, you do an HIV test and you want to tell the patient in person that they're positive. It doesn't go on their record until you tick that you've done it. You know, so it's got all this sophistication. And some of the systems in America have all that. Plus, they've built in things like screening. One hospital I went to in Canada, every time you go into the hospital, it checks when you were last screened. And whilst you're waiting in outpatients, they give you an iPad and they say, oh, now, whilst you're waiting, just fill in this. And you get all these screens to check your um, you know, various aspects of your health so that you get directed to the right allied health worker or whatever. Say you tick that you've been having trouble walking or falls, you'll get into the physio. It's the potential for a mm. system like this if they get it right, and I should add, these systems that exist like at individual hospitals, they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. They're very expensive and they take enormous training to get all the staff on board. So that's the future, though. It's a monumental if, though, isn't it? That's mm. what we're all concerned with. And it sounds as Lizzie's saying that there seems to be a little bit of a, a kind of cavalier approach to getting the details right. Uh, a, a great text has uh, just come through on 0437 774 774. My father was recently uh, into a major trauma and it took months to get his full medical records after multiple freedom of information requests maybe my health record will fix this that's that is the the goal of the of the whole outcome uh, however there seems to be quite a few you know sort of rickety bridges we need to cross so i mean i think that's such a great example and mm. it really does show how we have a lot of confusion about how we treat personal information and personal health information so the fact that the main way of getting access to your own health information is an foi request just shows that we have this real confusion about which law applies um, I've, I've done a similar thing in the past um, to be able to get access to just some medical images uh, we had to put in a freedom of information request um, which remember you know it's not just the inconvenience but it actually comes with a cost attached Mm. to it as well so um, I think it'll be interesting to see what you will actually be able to download from My Health Record. We know that people um, who have access to it in hospitals and doctor surgeries will be able to download information. I, I must say, I haven't seen anything to indicate that me as an individual patient would be able to download my own information. And a, another, uh, James from uh, Navas come in saying, David, uh, really enjoying the, the, the show and uh, the conversation. What actually happens to the data uh, which already exists when one opts out? I mean, is that locked up? I think you did well, say that. Yeah, is it? so yeah. currently the, the, uh, the policy is that it's inaccessible mm-hmm. uh, as it's described by the government. So it isn't deleted. And that's one of the changes that Greg Hunter said he plans to propose, uh, but it will require a legislative amendment. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll need to watch this space. Yeah. And opting back, can you opt back if you've opted out? You can, out? of course. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. I think people should opt out until they're confident or that they've got trust in the system, and I don't at the moment, but I may later on. Can I give you my opinion, having read it all today, I studied mm-hmm. up to in preparation Good. for tonight. No, we're I think if you're pretty healthy, um, opt out and give the government five years to sort out the privacy bugs. Or if you've got stuff that you feel will stigmatise you that you don't want out there, maybe your trauma history or some whatever your infections, um, yeah, then I'd opt out until you feel safe. But if you have comorbidity, meaning lots of illnesses, you travel a lot or you see different doctors, then personally I'd opt in because I think the risks will outweigh the 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 benefits will outweigh the risks. Uh, Quickly, because we've also got a call from. um 
I was going to say there is one group of people who may not have a choice and they are participants of health care homes, which is mm. a program for people with chronic health conditions. Uh, and it's a condition of participation in that program that you do have a My Health record. Unacceptable. Gemma from – unacceptable, I agree with that. Uh, Gemma from Maui joins us. Welcome, Gemma. G'day there. G'day. Now, what's your experience? Have you opted in? Well, I, I think that people should opt in because I've just spent the day with my elderly parent in hospital – and he has a degenerative disease, and um, it wasn't until my mother came in and he was moved from one ward in the hospital to intensive care for a respiratory infection, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until my mother came in and told the doctors that he had this degenerative disease that they realised that that was part of his condition as well. Also, they they didn't know what medications he was on until my mother brought the medications in. So there was no there was no narrative, so to speak, attached to your father until your mother could come in and, and fill in the, the missing yeah. pieces. Yeah. Now, if they had this health this health card or the health report in in place, then doctors just have to access that and they know. Okay, he's got this degenerative disease. He's got these this medication and that medication and and this on. If people are opting out. You know, then, you know, if they opt out, they could be running the risk of their own health. Well, they could. And, in fact, they could be debunking the, the system as a whole. I'll get the uh, the panel to respond. Uh, we wish you all the best with your father, Gemma, but uh, thanks for sharing that comment. And please listen in to see the, the response. Yeah, so I um, did actually speak to a, a couple of people. So I wrote a piece in the Saturday paper last week about this, and I spoke to somebody who was had a chronic health condition, and, you know, she's in a similar position. She says, well, look, I've got a lot of things I need to manage. I would like the convenience of having a central database, But she's also said that in the process of getting her diagnosis, she was diagnosed with uh, bipolar, which wasn't, it, she ended up having MS. So, you know, quite a different illness that then, what, does she have to disclose that she's got mental health history for the purposes of things like insurance? You know, will that come back to haunt her at some point in the future? And she says, as someone with a chronic health condition who occasionally participates in clinical trials, I don't want to be sharing my, my information with yet another person. And I think that's a legitimate response to that as well. But I completely understand. She's still thinking it over, and I think that's that should be everyone's job to think this over really carefully. Lizzie, it's lovely to meet you, and thank you so much for uh, keeping the keeping us up to date and um, with your vigil as part of a, the Digital Rights Watch Australia. Uh, let's uh, keep watching and uh, keep up to date. Uh, looking forward to another chat uh, down down the track. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Steve and Katie. Great Cheers. to see you both. Uh, Katie, lawyer, and Steve Allen, psychiatrist, co-author of Mental. Thanks again for Ritz and Cures.